welcome to the preaching ministry of Port St. Lucie Bible Church. We are a Christian church whose goal is to faithfully preach Christ from Scripture so that we might better love and serve Him. We pray that this message from God's Word would engage your mind with the truth and inspire your heart to obey Christ. Here's today's message. Well, I invite you to uh, open your Bibles to 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. And we are right at about verse 19, uh, where we are going to acknowledge today that there is a lot of curiosity uh, out there about uh, or concerning the Holy Spirit. There is also much interest in, in having a spiritual experience, uh, one that is a kind of experience that is driven by the Spirit. And believe it or not, I would like my own Christian experience to be to be propelled and driven by the Holy Spirit, influenced by the Holy Spirit. I imagine that that you do as well. Uh, So today's topic is extremely practical uh, for our day because the interpretation of these next four verses, this, this short passage, will significantly affect our experience together and corporate experience, how we behave, when we are together, uh, is a consequence of theology. It's a consequence of what you believe about God, uh, bibliology, what you believe about uh, Scripture. And um, therefore, this conversation isn't reserved for pastors. It isn't just for those who, we, who are leaders in churches. This is stuff that we need to discuss together uh, so that we understand why we don't jump up and down in the aisles together at our church. Uh, We know why we don't permit people to babble unintelligibly while the rest of us are trying to worship. And uh, are these decisions made uh, only according to a pastor's preference or those who are in leadership? It's just their preference in how you like to worship. Or is Christian worship, you know, simply a choice of style? You know, this church likes this style, another church likes another style. Uh, no, no. A, a, a church's or, or um, a personality of worship in a church is a consequence of biblical interpretation. How you interpret the Bible, theology is what guides worship. And it is insightful how accompanying today's fascination, uh, today's fascination with a spiritual experience, accompanying this is a peculiar resistance to any type of governance in guiding what is truly a genuine work of the Holy Spirit. There's much resistance to any sort of, of scriptural guidance as to what a work of the Holy Spirit looks like. Uh, instead of clarity, we often see confusion in Christian uh, or Christian-type worship, and that is not all that new, folks. It's not a new development uh, in the last few decades. Back in 1741, that is the colonial era, that is, that is pre-revolution, in 1741, Jonathan Edwards, whose preaching was... Perhaps the the greatest influence, or probably was the greatest influence of the first and and probably only Great Awakening in America, Uh, Edwards wrote a book titled Distinguishing Marks of a Work of the Spirit of God. They didn't use short, snappy titles back then. He called it Distinguishing Marks of a Work of the Spirit of God. And you can, you can down that, download that online. There's no copyright on that anymore. And you can read for yourself uh, his views on works of the, uh, true works of the Holy Spirit of God. And distinguishing a genuine work of the Spirit of God, is, that is a burden that Christ's church has always endured. Of course, the church that is in Corinth, or was in Corinth, uh, it was wrought with confusion. That's why we get First uh, and Second Corinthians. And d- early during the church age, the Apostle John found himself needing to defend Christians uh, by writing this warning. He says, Beloved, 
do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. Because he says many false prophets have gone out into the world. Many false prophets have gone out into the world. That's 1 John 4 uh, and verse 1. Um, to see some of them today, just turn on your television set and you will see some. Uh, false teachers are everywhere. Everywhere. And John identified one particularly false spirit uh, that confessed that Jesus Christ had not come from God in the flesh, uh, but suggested that Jesus, he, he was just a man. Just a man like any other man. Uh, maybe a spiritual man, a little more knowledgeable than some other men, but that he had not come from God in the flesh. And John attributed that doctrinal error, that, that mistake, to the spirit of the Antichrist. He said, that is the spirit of the Antichrist. And in, in 325 A.D., a council met in a city called Nicaea. And uh, that city was, is what be modern-day Turkey. But uh, a council uh, met in Nicaea. They confronted this error on the nature of Christ, defending the divinity of Christ, uh, issuing a Nicaean creed, which includes the following statement. Quote, We believe in one Lord, Jesus Christ, the only Son of God, eternally begotten of the Father, God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten, not made, meaning not created, of one being or one essence with the Father. Through him, speaking of Jesus, through him all things were made. And for us and for our salvation, he came down from heaven by the power of the Holy Spirit, he became incarnate from the Virgin Mary and was made man. <laughs> Quite a powerful statement in that creed. False prophets attacked the divinity of Christ. Uh, they did so by offering false teaching. That's what false prophets do. They offer false teaching. Prophets claim to speak for God. We're going to talk a little bit more about that next week. Prophets claim to speak for God. Prophets don't tell the future, all right? That, that's, that's a big mistake going on there today, that prophets who issue prophecies, that's what they do, they tell the future. No, the prophets claim to speak for God. Sometimes there might be an element of a prediction in that prophecy, but a prophet himself says, I am speaking for God. A, a very, very uh, bold claim. And for this reason, the Apostle John warns, every spirit that does not confess Christ, meaning that he hasn't come in the flesh, uh, that is not from God. That is not from God. Uh, false prophets are a source of false teaching. Uh, so we must always ask, you know, what is the spirit behind the teaching? What is, what is the spirit behind the teaching that we hear? And demonic spirits inspire false prophets to prop propagate false teaching and therefore testing the spirits to see whether they are from God. Testing the spirits involves scrutinizing doctrine. Scrutinizing doctrine. Jesus said in Matthew chapter 7, this is during the Sermon on the Mount, he said, beware of the false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing. Right? Many will say to me in that, in that day of the Lord's return, uh, Lord, Lord, didn't we do many wonderful, miraculous things in your name? And Jesus says, I will tell them, depart from me, you wicked doers of iniquity. I never knew you. And by the way, right before he tells us, beware of these false prophets, he says, judge not lest ye be judged. A lot of people get that confused because when Jesus is saying, judge not lest ye be judged, he isn't saying, don't discern the spirits. He's saying, don't be a hypocrite. Actually, you read that passage in Matthew 7, it's very clearly, don't be a hypocrite. Don't judge something and then yourself go out and do the identical thing. That's what that statement in Matthew 7 is for. Uh, and just a few verses later, you'll see that he'll say, beware of the false prophets. So we are always discerning, always, uh, always careful of what we hear. 
And distinguishing the, the true marks of a work of the Spirit of God, that, that's not a new and recent development in Christianity. You know, early churches just didn't uh, allow people to get up in front of congregations and, and teach whatever they wanted to about Jesus. Teaching has always had to conform to orthodoxy, and that word just means correct, uh, correct teaching. Orthodoxy is Greek, correct belief. And the testing or the discerning of the Spirit behind a doctrine, that's not being judgmental. Folks, that is being biblical. That's being scriptural uh, to assess and to test. And the apostles commanded testing in, first, uh, in the first century. Christians did so, continuing into the 325 A.D. Uh, Jonathan Edwards wrote a book about it in 1741. And we are, by apostolic command, still testing the spirits today, uh, as the Apostle John says, to see whether or not they are from God. The Apostle Paul states similarly in Ephesians 4 and verse 14, we are no longer to be children, tossed here and there by waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by the trickery of men, by craftiness and deceitful scheming. And at that time, our passage, about that same time, our passage in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, in verse 21, simply urges us to examine everything carefully. Examine everything carefully. The word that we translate examine in the English, it is the identical Greek term which John uses when he calls the church to test the spirits. Test the spirits. Examine everything carefully uh, to see whether it is from God. And we have in our possession only one reliable and divine litmus test through which a prophecy, uh, a teaching, a proclamation can be examined. There's, there's only one thing we have to determine whether a prophecy, someone speaking for God, uh, whether to discern if it is or is not from God. Referring to apostolic writers, John says, we are from God, speaking of himself and the other apostolic writers. He says, we are from God. He who knows God listens to us. He who is not from God does not listen to us. And he says, by this we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. It's by who listens to apostolic instruction. The spirit of truth conforms to historic apostolic teaching recorded in the pages of scripture. The spirit of error does not conform uh, to the word of God. Folks, this is not that hard. It's not really that difficult as we make it. Jesus tells us in John 17, verse 17, we are sanctified in the truth. Uh, your word is truth, he told the Father as he prayed. In Matthew 4, verse 4, Jesus replies to Satan. This is now when, he's, when Jesus is tested in the wilderness. Jesus replies to Satan by starting, uh, it is written. Jesus says, it is written. Man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. And there Jesus is, is seen or portrayed as he always is, or as he always was in the first century, submitting even his own teaching. Christ submitted even his own teaching to the authority of Scripture by first stating, it is written, it is written. Uh, there he quotes Deuteronomy 8 and verse 3. Uh, Man shall live on every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. So it, it is the Holy Scriptures. It is, it is the Holy Scriptures which distinguish the spirit of truth from the spirit of error. Our acceptance of any doctrine hinges on the word of God. Hinges on the word of God. Uh, Romans 10 and verse 17, faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. 
In Colossians 3, verse 16, Paul assures, we are to teach and admonish one another according to the word of Christ. We do that in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. Uh, folks, the word of Christ is only found in the Bible. 2 Timothy 3, and verse 16, all scripture is God-breathed and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be adequate, uh, fully equipped for every good work. Therefore, the Apostle Paul tells Timothy, this is the second generation, the next generation of Christians, preach the word. Preach the word. Give special attention to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation, and to teaching. Folks, uh, th this is review for all of you. I could go on and on and on quoting scriptures from the Old Testament, from Jesus' words himself and the New Testament, uh, from the epistles and letters uh, contained uh, after Christ was crucified and was rose in the New Testament. Uh, we could go on and on showing how every prophecy of scripture, every piece of scripture, the oracles of God, the Holy Bible, that is the supreme and final authority for all of Christian faith and practice. It's the supreme authority. Uh, all of our behavior is to be assessed, to be tested, to be examined according to the word of God. So the question that we must ask is, is what we, is what we are doing reflective of Scripture? Is what we do in worship is what we do in our lives and in our teaching? Is it reflective? Does it mirror what we see in the Bible? And since no other litmus test is available to us, you know, hopefully we've all matured. Hopefully we've all matured beyond placing faith in, you know, fleeting experiences, feelings of butterflies in our stomach, uh, goosebumps, things that go bump in the night, whispers we think we hear in the wind. Oh, was that God speaking? All of, the, all of these, uh, all of these, ideas in infancy we have put behind us but we have instead fully set our our experience in Christ on the immovable foundation of scripture the immovable foundation of apostolic teacher that uh, teaching which is cemented on the pages of the Bible uh, folks we don't listen to our heart Jeremiah says that the heart is deceitful above all else and desperately wicked. Who can understand it? You know, there, was a, there was a song back in the 80s that was, that was called Listen to Your Heart. You've probably heard it yeah, by Roxette. Back in the 80s when we were in high school. Uh, folks, when the world is telling you, when the fallen, depraved world is telling you to listen to your heart, you ought to know right away I better not listen to my heart. I better listen to every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. And the Spirit will then provoke you to understanding and to obedience in Christ. We don't listen to our heart. Um, therefore, when 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 and verse 19 commands, do not quench the Spirit, do not despise prophetic utterances, but examine everything carefully, we must interpret these scriptures, uh, the, these commands through the lens of scripture and what we see in describing this in scripture. And we have the uh, following principle in our favor. This principle's in our favor right here. When people on TBN, when they warn, hey, quench not the Holy Spirit, they are demanding that we submit ourselves to the supreme authority of Scripture. They've just quoted Scripture, and they are demanding that we all submit ourselves to Scripture. Quench not the Spirit of God, right? They're making an appeal that we all yield to Scripture. So I say we all get on board. And that is precisely where we want them to be, for then they should never hesitate to yield themselves to any other and every other passage that's found in Scripture. You don't want to do it just in one little sliver. 
all of words uh, of the word of God is authoritative. Uh, so we are compelled to ask. We must ask ourselves, what does it mean to not quench the spirit of God? What does that mean? Because it is very common in certain circles that verse 19 means this. I can act whatever way I want as long as I insist my behavior is prompted by the Holy Spirit. And quenching the Spirit to them means preventing them from acting out in whatever way they want. That's their definition of quenching the Spirit. Interfering with acting out in, in an uncontrolled way. Some of us have attended churches, and many of us have attended churches I know, where people fall to the floor and, and they convulse uncontrollably. Uh, we sometimes chuckle about, uh, you know, the holy rollers. But we probably shouldn't, huh? Probably shouldn't. Because it is, in reality, a very disturbing sight to see a crowded church applauding and laughing at such a scene. Thinking that's funny. Because where in Scripture do you ever find a regenerated Christian flailing about wildly without restraint? You don't. You don't. But is there any place in the Bible where we find people experiencing wild convulsions with their eyes rolling into the back of their heads? Oh, yeah. yeah. We repeatedly see it with people who are possessed by demons. Mark chapter 1 and Mark chapter 9, Luke chapter 8, Matthew 15. That's just a, that's just a few that Jesus encountered. And how do these same demon-possessed people behave once Christ has shown them grace? They are controlled in Scripture. They are sitting at his feet in their right mind, acting calmly. That is a distinguishing mark of the work of the Spirit of God. Calmly. Um, comparing with Scripture is how we exercise quality control on the fruit of the Spirit. Compare it with Scripture. Most industries employ personnel... Sometimes there are higher, uh, uh, are large departments called QC, quality control. We had a department called quality control when I worked as an aircraft mechanic for Delta Airlines. When we did repairs, QC department came out and they referenced blueprints, instructions, manuals, photos, illustrations to inspect whether the repair conformed within tolerable limits. Is this tolerable according to the manuals which we have? Uh, if the repair did not conform to the manufacturer's specified design, uh, it didn't pass the test. It got rejected. You got to do a do-over. Folks, this isn't that hard. During our scripture reading from Galatians chapter 5, we are given two long lists of instructions. One list contained, as we saw earlier, deeds of the flesh. They are impurity, sensuality, idolatry, enmity, strife, jealousy, disputes, dissensions, factions. You end up seeing a lot of division in the flesh. Uh, envy, carousing boastfulness. This is just to name a few. Everything that promoted division or focused attention on self. The other list describes the, the fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. And it said if we live by the Spirit, let us also walk by the Spirit. So it doesn't take a ton of discernment 
to see if, if the Holy Spirit is at work, he will produce these kinds of spiritual fruit. Observe whether it produces love and joy and peace and gentleness and goodness and, and self-control. If it does, I'm, I'm likely going to attribute it to the Holy Spirit. And I'm probably not going to throw cold water on it. And we should all recognize that the fruit of the Spirit has always produced order. Order. Not disorder and confusion. But the Spirit produces order. Even for the church in Corinth, the church in Corinth lacked no spiritual gift. They, they had them all. They lacked nothing, according to the Apostle Paul, uh, who then gave clear, clear standards and instructions for QC uh, over there, their quality control. He said, all things must be done properly and in an orderly manner, 1 Corinthians 14.40. And he also says in that same context, God is not a God of confusion, but of peace, as in all the churches. Means all churches will conform uh, to this order and not confusion. There will be peace as a fruit of the Spirit. The, Lord, the Lord's brother James, who wrote an epistle uh, by his name, uh, we call it. Chapter 3, verse 13, James writes this in his letter. Who among you is wise and understanding? Let him show by his good behavior his deeds in the gentleness of wisdom. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish, selfish ambition in your heart, do not be arrogant and so lie against the truth. The wisdom, uh, This wisdom is not that which comes down from above, but is earthly, natural, demonic. For where, for where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there is disorder and every evil thing. But, says James, the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, reasonable, full of mercy and good fruits, unwavering, without hypocrisy. And the seed whose fruit is righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. Folks, we would not want to quickly quench a spirit that brings order, that is reasonable, that is gentle, that is, that is righteous, and that sows peace. But we might want to quench the deeds of the flesh. Paul reminded Thessalonica, you need to examine everything closely. And using scripture... Uh, by using scripture, we test to determine which is, which is right, and thereby we quench any spirit that is not from God or reflects a spirit of an antichrist. The term quench there, which you've been waiting for, means to extinguish or, or to stifle, to put down. The word can also mean uh, simply to burn out. In, in the parable of the ten virgins, that's in Matthew chapter 25, uh, the same term is used to describe the lamps of the foolish virgins who, whose, whose flame in their lamp, the wick, began to die because they were lacking uh, oil. They were running out of oil. That is, that is written in a passive voice. It means it was just happening by itself. Uh, in verse 19, the Greek is in an active voice, which implies a deliberate attempt to suppress the Holy Spirit. And that, and that gets us a little, a little concerned, doesn't it? Boy, I wouldn't want to suppress the Holy Spirit. I sure wouldn't want to stop anything that God's Spirit is doing in and amongst the church. And we get a little bit skittish, and we back down, uh, but we don't read on into verse, uh, the later verses. It says, examine everything carefully to test. The command, do not quench is probably best tied to verse 20, which says to not despise prophetic utterance, 
more literally, don't, don't despise prophecies. And during this early period, the prophecy gifts were still functioning, particularly the gift of tongues that we will examine closely next week. And because most of the New Testament had not yet been written in 50 AD when 1 Thessalonians was written, God supplied some messages to some churches through unlearned people spontaneously speaking in a foreign language. People who had never studied the language before spontaneously breaking out in that foreign language. And the message was then to be interpreted by a foreign national who knew that language. It was natural to him, and he was to interpret. And tongues would be like, well, if Steve here. If Steve, not to suggest you're unlearned. We're all, we're all just fishermen here. That's all we are, unlearned fishermen. Uh, but if Steve were to spontaneously begin to speak in perfectly fluent Dutch. When Patrick Griffian, when Patrick Griffian uh, is here, who was raised in the Netherlands, he's not today, so you'll need to remain silent. Karen, Karen, yeah. Um, Karen, Karen is uh, having a little trouble at home, so we're going to pray for her as we close. Um, but if Steve here broke out in perfectly fluent Dutch speaking, and Patrick Griffian is here, who was raised in the Netherlands, uh, was present to interpret what he is saying, folks, that would be a miraculous sign from God. If Steve were to break out suddenly in a language he had never studied in perfectly fluent Dutch. Um, but if someone is simply taught by practice to say hallelujah 50 times really fast, or, or some other gobbly utterance that is not a language ever known to any human man, uh, in that case, we've got a five-gallon bucket of ice water right here behind the stage. That, that we have nearby just to quench such an occasion. Yeah? And even if it's a genuine language, there must be someone present who can interpret that native tongue. Uh, uh, if not, Paul says, the speaker is to remain silent. There's no one there to validate and to interpret for everyone else to hear. We're going to talk more about tongues next week. Uh, we'll bring some clarity to that. The biggest abuse we want to correct today is how verse 19, quench not the spirit, has been used to claim any and every odd behavior must be permitted in public worship. It's just not so. The rolling on the floors, the popping people on the head so that they fall down, uh, the waving of the flags during worship. Have you ever seen that? I have. I have. Um, it's one of the most distracting activities that I've ever seen in a church service. Uh, distracting activities. Robbing attention from Christ by turning everybody's attention to the person waving the flags. And, and, and folks, that is what that style of charismaticism always results in a shifting of focus to the individual and away from our Lord Jesus Christ. The attention goes to the one who, who says they've got the gift and, or, or puts on some kind of spiritual experience on display in front of everyone. Uh, folks, that is not Christ-centered worship at all. That is man-centered, entirely fixated on men. Uh, folks, we are not to put attention on men. We are not. Several years ago, this has been a long time ago, several years ago, we had a small handful of, of folks, who, folks here who wanted to push the envelope a little bit. All right. And uh, one of the first ideas, without the pastor's knowledge or permission from, from any of the leaders in the church, uh, they, they wanted to install kneeling benches at the front of the church. 
You familiar with those at all? Take them or leave, and I don't, leave them, I don't know. Uh, kneeling benches up on the stage, apparently up in parts of Tennessee. Anybody here from Tennessee? Parts of Tennessee. Not all of Tennessee. But apparently in, in parts of Tennessee, these benches are put in place so that a person spontaneously moved by the Holy Spirit can come forward to the front of the church at any time during the service uh, to kneel uh, to, and quietly pray right, right here in front of anybody. Yeah. And their grievance was when the Spirit moves us, we, we have to have a place to pray. I told them, pray from your seat. Pray from your seat. If you must kneel, discreetly dismiss yourself to one of the back rooms, we have several, and pray. But don't pray like the hypocrites who stand on the street corner to be seen by everybody and shift everyone's attention to you and away from Jesus Christ. Jesus said, if you are praying alone, I'm talking about corporate prayer there. Jesus says, if you are praying alone, find an inner room. Find a closet and pray in secret. And your father knows what you're doing in secret, and he'll, he'll reward you. But, but if it's not corporate prayer where we pray together, if it's private prayer just for you, find a place and do it alone. Uh, shortly after we decided not to instil, uh, install the kneeling benches, I received, received wind that uh, one or two from the same group were planning to act out during a worship service. Is planned to occur the very next Sunday, which just throws the spontaneity out of it all. You know, it's planned to occur the very next Sunday. And I told Pastor Weiler, who was here at the time, we, we've got to confront this. We've got to confront this. We got word that this was going to happen. So I asked the fella, what exactly do you plan to do? What do you plan to do? And he assured that he was going to follow the prompting of the Holy Spirit, which is planned already a week in advance. And the plan was that he would spontaneously come forward to the front of the church, and a couple others were prepared to follow him, you know, to prime the pump, to get things going. And again, this is all moving by the Spirit spontaneously. And I assured him, that's not going to happen not going to happen here. I told him, I'll stop the service immediately. I'll stop it immediately. Uh, and I absolutely would. I absolutely would. Um, all that type of behavior does is draw attention away from God and places it on the individual. Boy, I was accused. I was quenching the spirit. Think about myself. Am I? I'm quenching the spirit. But regardless of the type of manifestation, a genuine moving of the Holy Spirit always drives our hearts and our attention toward Christ. Not to any individual. Not toward man. You know, the same spiritual principle also remains consistent elsewhere in Christian worship, our experience that we share together. It's consistent in music. You know, spiritual music moves people's hearts to give attention to the Lord. Ken, we talked about this. Spiritual move, uh, music moves your heart to give attention to Christ. The wonderful things that he has done for us. Um, the less phys physical distractions, the better. The less, the better. So there's no hopping around on stage ecstatically, saying that the Spirit is causing you to do it, or, or dressing provocatively and drawing attention to yourself in Christian worship. Well, that only draws attention to man. That's all it does. And leading Christians in worship, our music team knows this, um, it's not an art of performing for men. Not performance. But rather it is a spiritual gift of elevating God while, while edifying man. While removing yourself from the focus 
taking yourself out of it. That's an art of Christian worship. I'm going to try to edify everybody here through the Word of God and through the songs and see if I can just remove myself from it. The principle remains true when preaching. All of Sunday worship, every element of worship that we share together is an attempt to serve Christ, to edify man, without drawing a lot of attention to self. Worship is never to become a, become a performance for men. That does also not imply that we are to try to do poorly so as to not draw attention to ourselves. In reality, doing so really poorly in front of people will quench that as well. Because it draws more attention to the individual than anything else. So we want great worship. We want gifted people skilled in, in music and in teaching and in preaching. We don't want to do things poorly. But there has to be a giftedness. A giftedness by the Spirit that serves as edifying to the whole body of Christ. Folks, we are to lift people's praises upward. Upward to Jesus uh, for what Christ has done for us on the cross. So I'm going to do my best, best ability to serve the church of Christ. Do the best that I can to keep myself out of it from becoming the focus of attention. And regardless of where you serve, glory given to Jesus Christ is a distinguishing mark of the Holy Spirit of God. Always drawn glory and attention to Jesus Christ. In his book, Jonathan Edwards gives the following summaries of what we should expect when the Spirit of God is working among men. Jonathan Edwards says this, quote, There are many things concerning this work that are well known. He's saying it's common knowledge. He said, These are sufficient to determine it to be a work of God. The spirit who is at work takes people's minds off the vanities of the world. He engages them in a deep concern about eternal happiness. That is the spirit. He also puts their thoughts on earnestly seeking their salvation. The Spirit convinces them of the dreadfulness of sin and of their own guile and miserable natural state. He says the Spirit awakens men's consciousness and makes them aware of God's awful anger. He causes them a great desire and earnest care and endeavor to obtain God's favor The Spirit causes them to be more diligent in the use of His appointed means of grace. Especially, this is seen, says Edwards, in a greater desire to hear and read the Word of God. That's a distinguishing mark of the work of the Holy Spirit Spirit of God. He continues, And it is well known that the Spirit, who is at work, operates as the Spirit of truth. He makes people more aware of of what is really true in those things that concern their eternal salvation. He impresses on them that they must die and that life is very short and uncertain. He shows them there is a great sin-hating God to whom they are accountable and who will fix them in an eternal state in another world. He shows them they stand in great need of a Savior. He makes persons more aware of the value of Jesus who was crucified and their need for him. And he says, and this awareness moves them to earnestly to seek an interest in Jesus. Folks, anything that contributes to those wonderful assessments, we're not going to throw cold water on that. And as I stated when we began, 
how we interpret these four verses will govern the spiritual experience that we all share together. Because corporate worship, or how we behave together, is a consequence of theology. It's a result of good theology. Well, concerning the small group who wanted to uh, unleash the Spirit at Port St. Lucie Bible Church, I told uh, Pastor Weiler that addressing this quickly is critical for our church. Acting out or acting uncontrolled cannot happen. I know you folks who attend each Sunday, uh, I know that you're watching carefully of what happens, what's going on. Uh, new visitors, those who come in for the first time, uh, they are especially sensitive to what they see in corporate worship when they visit on Sunday. And Sunday worship defines who you are as a church. And if pastors permit acting out during worship, they'll come forward out of turn or erratic behavior, or whatever type of activity it is, uh, if pastors permit that, charismaticism will quickly overtake a church. will quickly overtake a church. If it becomes apparent that a pastor is unwilling to correct it or address it, in about three or four Sundays, in about three or four Sundays, your theologically conservative members will stop coming. Is that right, Jeff Rogan? You show grace, but not that much grace, right? I don't blame people. And any first-time visitors who come from a doctrinally sound position, they'll never come back. They won't return either. Um, but at the same time, every charismatic-leaning visitor who sees disorder, they'll keep coming back. Because if they sense that there is a license given to act out, uh, they will buckle in. And they will stay for the long term. And within about six months, especially in, a, in South Florida where we've got a lot of movement with people, in about six months, you could have a theologically conservative church swing completely charismatic. Folks, you have to nip it in the bud. You have to not be afraid or ashamed to assess and examine everything carefully to see whether it is from God. We must discern what behavior is consistent with Scripture, what is genuine fruit of the Spirit, and if there is, if there is another kind of spirit, uh, you, have to not be, you have to not be afraid to throw cold water on it. Well, that is not quenching the Spirit. And it's for these reasons that Paul warns, you've got to examine everything carefully, hold fast to that which is good, and abstain from every form of evil. We've got some more from these verses coming next Sunday. We're going to discuss next week prophecies and speaking in tongues. I think the title of my message next week is going to be The Truth on Tongues. If you're a new visitor, you're probably wondering if I'm ever going to get around to sharing the gospel. I know when I visit a church somewhere, I always want to know, I'm always waiting, when's the gospel coming? Someone might walk into a church one time and never come back. Uh, are they going to hear the gospel? And uh, I will. I will. Because your spiritual experience cannot begin until you have trusted in Christ, until you recognize that you've broken God's commandments, not just once, not just twice, but on innumerable occasions, you have lied, you've stolen, you have cheated, uh, you have blasphemed, you have set up idols in your life. And for that, Romans 6 verse 23 states that the wages of your sin, or that which you have earned through your sin, is death. Separation from God. Scripture assures that God is just in condemning you or I. For Scripture assures that among men and women there is none righteous, not even one. There is none who seeks for God. There's none who understands. All have turned aside. Together we have become worthless. There's none who does good. There's not even one. That was our memory verse last week for family night. And that is Romans 3.10. 
But though there, there's nothing good about us, nothing good in the natural man, folks, God is good. God is good. And he sent his very own son to be born of a virgin into human flesh, God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten, not made. And Jesus is the eternal son of God who came and he lived as a man, yet without any sin. He never sinned. And on the cross, he bore the punishment for all of those who would believe in him. Scripture says, to all who receive him, to all who believe, he gives the right to become children of God. And if you will place your trust in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit, and then your Christian experience can begin. We invite you as a church we invite you to trust in Jesus Christ as your Savior, that he has saved you from your sin. He died on the cross for sin. He was buried in the ground, and he rose again on the third day and was seen by hundreds of people. We invite you to trust that he came from God. Then next Sunday, come back. We're going to talk about the truth about tongues. I'm ready for that one. Let's pray.